0: Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation.
1: Thanks, Ellie. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. It's lovely to be here with you today. I apologise, my voice is a little croaky. I hope you can hear me with the microphone Uh, loud and clear, if not, um, sing out, and I'll try and speak a little louder. It's the sort of thing that's usually described as a split-second decision. But for Lance Corporal Matthew Croucher, he actually had seven seconds to make up his mind what was he going to do. I've got a photo of Matthew Croucher on the screen behind me. You can see him up there. He was a Marine. He was working in the Helmand province of Afghanistan. and One day, he and a company of 40 other soldiers were sent out to investigate a suspected Taliban bomb-making factory. And during the mission, Matthew, with his close mates nearby, accidentally set off a tripwire and he exposed a deadly grenade. Matthew says the following. He says, I've set this thing off And I'm thinking, I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect the others. He says in the article that I'd read that he'd rehearsed this sort of thing before in his mind. He knew that grenades would probably kill everyone who was in a five-metre radius. And so he yells out, grenade, take cover. And he himself dives on top of the grenade. He rolls on his back onto the grenade, pressing his backpack onto the grenade. He had inside his backpack a a rocket, a lithium battery pack and a medical kit. And he presses it down hard on the grenade. And seven seconds after tripping that wire, there's an almighty bang. Matthew's thrown into the air. His actions save the lives of Of those who were with him, and 30 seconds later, when the dust kind of settles, Matthew realised that he wasn't dead. In fact, short of a nosebleed, he was pretty much intact. His backpack, though, was a little worse for wear. You can see it on the screen. There, you might be able to see it's a bit tattered. Billy McFasden wasn't so fortunate. Billy was a 20-year-old. He found himself in the Battle of the Somme during the First World War. On the 1st of July, 1916, while unloading a crate of bombs, he saw some of them slip down into a crowded trench and he saw two pins dislodged from the bombs. Let me read you a little bit that comes out of the London Gazette from 1916. It says this, Private McFadstein, instantly realising the danger to his comrades, was heroic enough to throw himself on top of the bombs. The bombs exploded, blowing him to pieces, but the only other man, only one other man was injured. He well knew the danger, being himself a bomber, but without a moment's hesitation, he gave his life for his comrades. Billy McFasden was awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously, And he's remembered by many Northern Islanders in a famous song. These stories are pretty shocking, aren't they? But they also demonstrate so clearly that love can be sacrificial. The love that Matthew Croucher had for the rest of his command, it caused him without a hesitation to put his life on the line for his friends. And for Billy McFasden, that love cost him his life. I want you to see today that this is the sort of love that that Paul has on view in Romans chapter 5. And Paul tells us that love like this, well, that's rare. We don't see it too often. Not every soldier has a Victoria Cross, brave as they may all be. Not everyone is willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. We've been working our way through the book of Romans for a number of weeks now and we've seen some some great truths about God and about humanity. But for me, what's so powerful and so meaningful about chapter 5 of Romans is that it, it paints a picture of the depth of God's love for his people. And I think, in a way, this is a new angle for us in the book of Romans. A new angle for us. I know that some of you here are lawyers or have a legal background. I want you to know this morning that you are very much loved um, among us. And so what I say, really, I mean no offence here, but as I read through chapters 1 to 4 of Romans, I sometimes kind of get the feeling that I'm sitting in a lawyer's office. All the talk about justice and righteousness. It's all very strict and proper and calculated and logical and ordered but chapter 5 of Romans is different isn't it because in chapter 5 we see words of love and that love is incredible and it's deep and it's rich and it's profound and it's life-giving I've spoken about the book of Romans as being a little bit like a trek up Mount Lofty And I want to keep reminding you of this because by the time we finish our series in Romans, I'd love you to be able to think back over the book as a whole and be able to remember where the milestones in the book are. So let me just recap our journey with you very quickly. We started our journey in Romans with Paul's thesis statement in chapter 1. You might remember that from verses 16 and 17. This is what Paul says. This is his main argument for the whole book. He says I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In the remainder of chapter 1 and Chapter two, and indeed the first part of chapter three of Romans, we saw Paul paint a picture of humanity that was under God's wrath. humanity under God's wrath. And it kind of reached this climactic point in chapter three, verses 10 and 11, where we read this. So Paul says, "There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away." They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in our journey up Mount Lofty, I said it's kind of like we've just got out of the, out of the car park and we've arrived at the, the toilets, at the rest stop. It's not pleasant. It's not a great vista to see here. I've got a photo of the toilets from Mount Lofty. They're actually wonderfully architecturally designed. <laughs> I want you to see past that for a minute And I want you to imagine what they look like inside at about 11.30 on a Saturday morning when hundreds of blokes have used those toilets. That is the vista that Paul is painting for us at this point. And by the time we get to this point in chapter 3, a problem has been fleshed out. God has promised to make a family for himself, a numerous family. We've also seen that God is a holy God and he can't have a family of people who don't meet up to his expectations. And the question we posed is this, how will God stay faithful to his promise without compromising his own justice or without compromising his own integrity? Because to do so would mean that he's no longer God. How will God's righteous wrath be revealed? And the answer is given at the end of chapter three. The answer is that it will be through Jesus and through His atoning sacrifice. In Jesus' death, the wrath of God is satisfied. And we learn that those who have faith in Jesus, they are justified. It's a great vista. I've got a photo of a cross just to remind you of that, marking our vista in our journey up Mount Lofty. We're justified by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And then last week in chapter 4, I wanted to show you clearly that faith was the means by which we are incorporated into God's family. I wanted you to see that there's nothing that we can do I told you last week that this kind of flies in the face of our natural instincts because so often we're told to try and be good. Do We think being right with God is about us doing the right things and that flies in the face of what Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says. Let me read to you again these words. It says, To the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteous. I don't know how to represent this on our journey other than to put a photo of a bike up there. If you were with us last week, this photo will make sense because I showed you this idea that you can't ride a bike where the steering has been reversed because our instinct tells us how to ride a bike. It's part of our instinct, our natural instinct, to think that we are saved by doing the right thing. But Romans chapter 4 tells us, no, it is through faith And even that faith is given as a gift. It is through our faith that we are made right with God. It's been a big journey so far, hasn't it? Can you see what I mean though when I say it It feels a little bit like we're sitting in a lawyer's office? Paul's gone to great effort to show us how it all works. He's explained the legal implications. He's explained the mechanism behind how God can still be God and yet create a family for himself made up of people like you and me. you know, I'm really grateful for chapters 1 to 4 of Romans because I like logic and I like order and justice and I see that in these pages. But when we get to chapter 5, the tone and the mood, I think it shifts. I think it feels like, after having been in a lawyer's office, that we're kind of stepping out into that expectation you get, say, the night before Christmas. You know that feeling when the end of the term ends and the end of term four, and you roll into Christmas holidays? I think that's a little bit what chapter 5 feels like as we read our way through it. And did you notice, as Ellie read to us, that chapter 5 is even filled with those words of Christmas, peace and love and hope? Are words of great contentment and joy, aren't they? After being in the lawyer's office, it's like we've settled down on the sofa with a glass of mulled wine or eggnog and we're watching a crackling fire. See, these words of peace and hope and love are words that are, bring forward tremendous expectation. I'll take a look with, with you at them this morning. Paul begins with the idea of peace love you to have a look at this in verse 1 of chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1,750 of your Black Bibles. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Maybe today you arrived here not even realising that you need peace with God. If that's you, I'd encourage you at some stage in the next few days to go back and read the earlier chapters of Romans. Because I think once you see the argument of Paul so far in this letter, you will see that indeed each one of us does need peace with God. And you'll see as you read those earlier chapters how that peace comes about through Jesus' atoning sacrifice. But here in chapter 5, Paul begins to work out the implications of that sacrifice. And it means for those of us who place our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. You may not have thought of yourself as an enemy of God, even just saying that, I reckon that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Being an enemy of God. Remember, God is the creator of the world. He's powerful beyond measure. To be his enemy, well, that's terrifying. Perhaps that's why we don't think in those terms much today. It hasn't always been that way. If you were a, a farmer in ancient Rome at the time when Paul wrote this letter, if it hadn't rained for a few weeks, you might wonder what you'd done to put God offside, how you'd become his enemy. If your business in early Rome was going downhill, you might plead with God for his peace. And back in those days, people would go to vast efforts to make themselves at peace with God. And Paul spells it out here clearly. If we are justified through faith, we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, then we have access by Jesus into a space of grace. Access into a space of grace. I wonder if you ever had one of those special magnetic swipe cards that lets you in somewhere special. I have one that allows me to get into the gym that I should use more often. Um, at least I have one, um, and I keep it in the car that I use to go to the gym. Last week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, our car had a unfortunate little bingle and it needed to spend a few weeks in a crash repairers and my card was stuck inside the car, wherever that was. I forgot about this. I borrowed a car and I went to the gym early on one Saturday morning and I got out of the car and I realised at that point that I didn't have my access card. I went up thought, I'll just go and stand by the door and see what happens anyway. And I walked up to the gym door and I like waved my arms around, I'm hoping that someone inside will come and get me. But without my access card, there's just no way that I was getting into that space. No way anyone was letting me in. I had to turn around and go home, get back to bed. (laughs) What a shame, eh? Can you see here the great delight that Paul has in being justified? It means access into that space where we are in the grace and favour of our God means access into the place where we have peace with God. There's no longer any hostility between us and God in that space. And I want you to see that this is a present reality for us today who place our faith and trust in God. It's a present reality, something that we can have today. I want you to also see, though, that peace with God doesn't necessarily mean that the Christian life will be a life without suffering or difficulties. It becomes clear in verse 3 when Paul says this. He says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For some of us, This might not have been your best week ever. For some of us, we might be working through some pretty painful or pretty difficult things at the moment. You might be in the midst of sickness or pain or heartache or some uncertainty. If that's you today, suffering might feel a very real thing for you. Before we move on, I just want to say to you, if that's you, feel free to come and have a chat with me or someone else in our leadership team. If you think there's any way in which we can care for you we'd love to pray for you in that suffering today suffering remains a part of the Christian life in the here and now even though we have peace with God Paul acknowledges that but he goes on to say something else about suffering he says it produces perseverance and character and hope you might be wondering this morning how can that be possible Well, here's at least one way that I can make sense of these words. Suffering forces us to look forward, or put another way, suffering forces us to hope in a time where we will suffer no more. If you're younger than 40 today, you might not realise this, but for many of the rest of us, we hurt every day. For some of us, our bodies hurt and that pain grabs our attention all the time. I'm fortunate enough to, although I have a little bit of a cold today, to be pretty much okay most of the time. But you know what? In the last few years, nearly every morning when I get up, my left ankle hurts. Hurts for the first few steps every time I get out of bed. I'm looking forward to a time when I wake up where my ankle will not hurt when I get up in the morning. Having a sore ankle in the morning, just in a very small way, helps me to hold on to the promises of God to look forward to a time where there will be no more pain and no more suffering. The Bible tells us that that time will come in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no mourning, no more sickness, no more pain. I wonder if you're looking forward to that day when Jesus returns today. You are looking forward to that day? I think your answer to that will depend a little bit on where you're at in life. See, i got a hunch. I reckon if you ask a bride or an eager husband about 24 hours before, they get to, before they're about to be married, if they would like Jesus to return, I reckon they'd probably say, of course, we'd love Jesus to return, but maybe just in a couple of weeks. Just let us get married first. What about if you ask a student who is really struggling hard, working really hard with their study, burning the candle at both ends, getting up early in the morning to study and studying late at night, and the material they're trying hard to learn is just not going into their mind. It's just not working. See, if you ask them kind of the night before their exam, would you like Jesus to come back? I reckon they'd say, hallelujah, bring it on, please come back tonight. I think the same goes if we're in pain or we're suffering. It's when the suffering's acute that we hope and we yearn and we are eager for the world to be put right. I think that's sort of what Paul's got on view here. Suffering makes us yearn for the world to be put right, to hope and long for that day. And Paul says it's a hope that won't disappoint. That's the sentiment of verse 5. And Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The hope that we have in God is the hope of the new creation and the things being put right. And that hope won't put us to shame. It won't one day be shown to be a false hope. I wonder if you've ever experienced a false hope. When Meredith and I were first married, we were both students and that meant that eating out was a bit of a treat for us. Um, We'd been saving up for a while, hoping to go to a great meal at a restaurant in town. We'd had this restaurant recommended to us and we were really looking forward to it. We were hoping to experience the sort of food that we'd never eaten before and we were both looking forward to it. Anyway, when the night finally came, we walked into the restaurant and immediately something didn't quite feel right. Um, but not kind of wanting to dampen the mood of excitement that both of us had, we sat down and kind of ordered our food, and you know it was actually thoroughly disappointing. It's not so much that the food was bad; it just it wasn't at all what we were hoping for. Our hope had been put to shame, and we walked out of the restaurant feeling deflated and a bit depressed, only to see that the restaurant that we intended to go was right next door. We'd gone to the wrong <laughs> restaurant. No wonder we didn't get what we were expecting. Paul tells us that the hope we have in God, it will not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, Paul goes on to explain that in verses 6 and 7 with verses 6 to 8, sorry, with verses that I think will be dear to many of us. Let me read these verses. He says, You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are amazing words, aren't they? They show us how peace and hope and love are connected together. But just let me chase the connection with you about our hope first. Why will our hope not be put to shame? Well, it's because it's already certain. Sure, our hope is still in the future, or what we hope for is in the future. What we hope for hasn't yet arrived. We're not already in the new creation, are we? That's apparent as we look around the world. But one day we will be, for those of us who put our hope and trust in Jesus, that is certain. And we know that because Jesus has already ensured that it will happen. The thing that's needed for us to be in the new creation, peace with God, justification, being declared righteous, that has already happened. And so the hope that we have today cannot be a disappointment. The hard work has been done and the rest is a certainty. That's the logic of Paul's argument. I like the logic. It appeals to the engineering side of me. I really enjoy being able to trace the logic in this argument. But for me, really, the way in which Paul's argument progresses here, well, I'm willing to drop that because it shows us also so clearly the love of God. And it's magnificent, isn't it? How much he loves us. See, we've seen already in the book of Romans that God must act according to his own rules. We've seen God as a just God and as a holy God and as a righteous God. But here, really for the first time in the book, we see his love. It's profound. Earlier I spoke about Lance Corporal Matthew Croucher and about Billy McFasden. These guys demonstrated their love towards their mates, didn't they? Their actions were heroic and commendable and worthy of honour and for it they deserved the medals they got the George Cross for Matthew Croucher and the Victoria Cross for Billy McFasden but their sort of behaviour doesn't happen very often does it Paul says it's rare that anyone would die for a righteous person though for a good person and perhaps another way to translate that good person is to say for a benefactor for a benefactor someone might possibly dare to die I think the gist of what Paul is saying is this. It's, it's very rare for someone to give up their life for another. Although for a person you owe a debt or a gratitude, you might consider it. But look what follows. But God, well, he demonstrates his love in this way while we were still sinners, his enemies, rightly under his wrath. When we were like that, Christ died for us. Matthew Crouch had jumped on a grenade to save his buddies, his mates. It's laudable, isn't it? And he was given the George Cross medal for that. But imagine if he jumped on the grenade that had been thrown at his enemy. Imagine if he had risked life and limb for the sake of those who he was trying to track down for the Taliban. That is unheard of. And that is the love of God. If you doubt that, have a look with me in verse 10. It says this, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Isn't that just extraordinary? For some of you, these words will be so familiar. You will have read this this passage many, many times today. But I want you to leave today unaffected by this. While we were God's enemies, God reconciled us through the death of his son. And hope doesn't disappoint. It won't put us to shame. The work has already been done. God has reconciled us through the death of Jesus. And because of that, we can look forward to the day when we will be saved. Last thing I want you to see from this passage this morning is, is just the order of events that seem to be described by Paul in chapter 5 of Romans. Chapter 5 of Romans tells us that for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we have already been justified. That means that today we are at peace with God. We have in now, we have in the here and now, hope in the promises of the new creation. That hope is guaranteed by what's already happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus our hope, or perhaps the subject of our hope, the new creation, that still lies off in the future. I want you to see here also that Paul refers to our our salvation as being off in the future. This might seem a little bit like semantics, but I just want you to see the order here today. Verse 9 demonstrates it clearly. We have been justified now by the blood of Jesus so that on the day when God's wrath is revealed, the day of judgment we will be saved. I take it we'll be saved in that day from God's righteous wrath through the work of Jesus. So what does it all mean for us? Well, it means we can have great confidence about what will happen when we die or about what happens when Jesus returns. Great confidence if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. If we acknowledge Jesus as Lord then we're at peace with him and with God. And we know that we'll be with him in that place of grace. One day we'll be with him in the new creation. Romans chapter 5, it also paints for us a picture of what our God is like. And it's an angle or a a painting that we haven't seen so much in Romans so far. Romans chapter 5 shows us with great clarity the love of God. Shows us the extent that he would go to welcome us into his family. I reckon Matthew Crouchy was one impressive guy. I reckon he deserves the medal that he got. Imagine jumping onto a grenade. What a way to demonstrate to your mates how much you care for them. But God jumped on a grenade for the sake of his enemies. That's what God's love is like. Let me give thanks to that God. (coughs) Father God, what a love you have for us. We praise you for that love. We thank you that while we were your enemies, you gave up your son for our sake. We praise you for your mercy and your grace and your love which you have lavished upon us. Amen. Chris I've got one question today on the SMS line it says this Romans 5 9 to 10 suggests that not only Christ's death but his life also ensures that we will be saved can we be assured then that God will keep us till the end good question isn't it Um, have a look with me at Romans chapter 5 9 and 10. Or even just verse 10, probably. For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I wonder what you think that means. I take it that um, as Jesus, as a risen king, is making intercession for us even today, that we are saved through that. And I think some of this is also sort of fleshed out a little bit further in chapter 8. I think chapter 8. In many ways in Romans acts as a way of sort of fleshing this out a little bit further for us. In Romans chapter 8 it talks about the role of the spirit in our life. And I thought I'd just read to you from verse 10 as a way of kind of giving us the assurance. It says this, but if, this is chapter 8 verse 10, but if Christ is in you, in other words if we have union with Christ through his life, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, in other words, if we have union with Christ, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. And that sort of that union with Christ who is alive today is part of what it means to be saved through his life. That we're united with him, we are of him and uh, known by him. I hope that kind of answers that question a little bit. Please come and chat with me after if you'd like to ask anything else about the passage. Thanks, Matt.